electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market insight and analysis. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Tuesday morning and welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm David Faber along with Morgan Brennan and Bob Pisani. Nice to have Bob here this morning. Let's give you a look at futures as we get ready to begin trading one half hour from now, as you heard. And of course, as Joe was just discussing and Mike and Melissa, we are going to be uh, looking at a higher open here and potentially some new records. Let's get to our roadmap this morning. It does begin with that rise in futures as stocks are looking to build off those record highs. Then a return to service for the 737 MAX. We are live on the tarmac ahead of the aircraft's first commercial flight in the U.S. in 20 months. And later, a change at the top for the SEC, a primer on the agency's new acting chairman. But we will start this morning with, as you might expect, the markets, as futures are indicating, another higher open. Bob, it is great to have you, uh, at least virtually. Of course, you and I have not seen each other in ages uh, face to face. But, uh, you know, as this year ends, as we hit new heights, I love your take in terms of where we stand right now with a handful of trading days left in 2020. Well, this has certainly been a year for the record books. I think it's important in these kinds of situations to remind everybody what really did matter in 2021 and what might matter in, in 2020. I think the big story of 2020 was was a belief that the vaccine was coming and that a vaccine rollout would matter. That's the number one story for the year. I think that's what motivated stocks most importantly. Elsewhere, number two, I'd have to say uh, monetary and fiscal stimulus, particularly the Federal Reserve's stimulus. David, remember, we started out with what? Uh, $3 trillion balance sheet, $4 trillion on the Fed. It's up to past seven. So we've essentially doubled the Fed's balance sheet. And the reopening, the market is now looking past the COVID winter towards a better 2021, uh, a better particularly second quarter. We had a lot of debates about whether the markets were overvalued or undervalued at this point. Uh, but the multiple, it's very pricey, very expensive on a belief that we're going to have a significantly better second half of the year. And finally, I just want to remind everyone about the liquidity situation out there. There's been plenty of money to buy stocks. That's not been a problem. That Fed QE program has been enormous uh, overall, uh, double essentially the balance sheet for the Federal Reserve. Uh, and I think that's the ultimate thing that matters. If you talk to anybody out there and say, if the Fed did not intervene with that liquidity program this year, would the markets be lower? And the answer is, heck yeah, anywhere from 20, 30, 40 percent uh, lower. Finally, David, just on the earnings situation, I can't emphasize enough how much the market believes there's going to be an earnings explosion in 2021. If you look here, we had, we had a great numbers in 2019, $162 for the S&P. We're, we dropped to $135 in 2020, and we're going to get new highs in 2021. We're going to be past the old numbers, 167, 170, 175. There's going to be an explosion in earnings, or at least that's what the market believes and that, David, is what's animating stocks right now. Yeah. And, uh, of course, we've talked a lot, Morgan, about the multiples that we look at every day. Oh, yeah. uh, not just earnings, but also multiples to sales on some of these high flyers, not stopping uh, many of the buyers from continuing to plunge in. 
Yeah, multiples to sales because those are companies that aren't in many cases, especially when we're talking about some of these smaller tech companies that have been just incredibly high flyers this year on that whole stay-at-home, you know, tech boom, COVID trade, if you will, um, that are not profitable. Uh, that being said, I think there are also a number of risks for this market in 2021 as well. So, yes, we're expecting, or at least Wall Street's expecting, this earnings explosion. But also, back to your point, David, valuations, what's the right price to those earnings, uh, especially the fact, given the fact that the markets have arguably gotten over their skis, or at least some pockets of the markets have um, there are also some key risks, right? We've seen investors taking bigger bets, bigger, bigger, more risky bets um, that I think is going to be a bigger story in 2021 uh, in terms of some of the trading strategies that are out there, including some of the retail investing trading strategies that are out there. We've got the Senate runoffs next week. I think that's going to be a key thing to watch, too. What does the Biden administration actually mean for the markets, right? Are we going to see higher taxes? Are we going to see a rollback in the deregulations that we've saw, seen, or I guess a roll forward, maybe, I should say, in terms of regulations? Um, um, that we've seen under the Trump administration. And of course, a lot of that is going to hinge on those results in Georgia that we get next week as well. So I think we just go on down the list. I mean, the other thing I'm keeping a close eye on, and I know we've been talking about this on the show quite a bit, and Bob, I'd love to get your thoughts too. The dollar index, the fact that we've seen such a weakening in that dollar index, and yes, it, it moved back above 90 in recent trading sessions, but now it seems to be testing that level again here right now. And what is that going to mean when we talk about that liquidity situation? We talk about monetary policy coming into 2021 with earnings, with the economy firing back to life uh, amid the vaccine rollout. What is that going to look like in terms of inflation? And what does that mean for something like the dollar and also commodities, which we know move inversely to it? Exactly. And I, I think the point here is it's affected the stock market in, in two ways. First off, lower rates, of course, affecting the dollar, lower dollar, but lower rates driving more people into the stock market. There is no alternative. You can't have 0.9% 10-year bonds and expect people to hold that in opposition to stocks for, for 10 years. So that's number one, low rates, low dollar, driving more people into stocks. And number two, lower dollar has a tremendous influence on emerging market economies, not just in commodities, as you mentioned, uh, Morgan, but also, of course, uh, in their ability to export yeah. Uh, and be more powerful as exporters. So there you can see this, and you could actually see as the dollar index weakened over the course of the year, emerging market economies like Vietnam started moving up. Vietnam is now at a new high. I know that's a small market, but you can go down the list and look at how well emerging markets have done since the dollar has been weakened, Morgan. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think just to that point in general, looking internationally, man, we talk so much about the fact that we're at these record highs here in the U.S., equity markets, but just looking around the globe, um, you know, the Nikkei, for example, I think is at a more than three decade high right now. It really speaks to the fact yeah. that we're seeing the surge in the markets more broadly, uh, internationally speaking as well. Yes. You know, uh, Bob, and, though, you uh, did bring Nikkei, up, of course, it, the, the... Is at a new high, yes. Yeah, Bob, you brought up the prospect, obviously, of vaccinations being such an important component of the bull thesis and the fact that stocks have maintained, if not extended, uh, their gains as the vaccine rollout has begun. But, you know, there had been a hope that we'd uh, uh, vaccinate as many as 20 million people by the end of this year. It doesn't appear that we're going to be anywhere near that, at least at the pace that we're currently going in terms of, of getting those needles into arms right now. I don't know if that's going to have any impact in, uh, you know, in terms of the way people view uh, the market right now. But it is important to point that out. And, of course, unfortunately, 
that I think hospitalizations are hitting record highs yeah. uh, here in this country right now as a result of COVID, which continues. And Scott Gottlieb has said it many times. I mean, these next six weeks could be very tough. Right. So a big question has been amongst those who are, uh, say, more pessimistic about the economic outlook is looking at the stock market. I get these emails all day long. Hey, Bob, when is the covid winter going to matter? When is the stock market going to wake up and see what kind of economic damage is being done? The deaths, people being admitted, the, the loss of jobs that's out there. When is the market going to wake up to that? And the simple answer is the market is looking past all that towards a belief that it's going to be a lot better in the second half of the year. People can say, you people are living in fantasies, but th that is the way the stock market works. In terms of the rollout, very clearly, David, the stock market is not upset that it's not going perfectly, that it's not getting the maximum amount of vaccinations possible. It seems okay with that. I think what it would not be okay with if suddenly a new strain developed that was vaccine resistant. That, I think, might be a bigger problem. So far, we are hearing that they may be efficacious. These new strains that may be developing in the UK are likely, uh, the vaccines there will likely be efficacious. We don't know that for sure, but that seems to be the case. I think the market would react differently if that was not the case, though, David. Yeah, I mean, I'll just jump in right there. So far, the U.S. has administered more than, what, 2 million doses. It's the most of any country so far. But we still have a really long way to go here. Nearly 16 million first doses of both the Pfizer, BioNTech, and also Moderna vaccines that are scheduled for distribution over this next week. Um, so we're definitely starting to see those numbers ramp up. I'll tell you just from personal experience, the first member of my family, my stepdad, who's a doctor on the front lines in a hospital in the Poughkeepsie area, just got his first shot yesterday. Um, so keeping an eye on that just from a personal standpoint as well. But, um, you know, we have some other names to keep an eye on, too, which I think is going to continue to add to this conversation in the coming weeks and coming months, whether it's the AstraZeneca vaccine that I know is under review uh, in the UK right now, whether it's Novavax starting its late stage trial of a vaccine or another name. And I might butcher it. So apologies if I do. But Arcturus Therapeutics, which is actually plunging in the pre-market uh, right now, despite uh, putting out some, it looks like, favorable study results. Um, but there are these names to continue watching that are going to continue, potentially, depending on the outcomes of some of these trials, uh, add to the supply scenario as well. I, I wonder, David, how much of that is being factored into the market discussion, too, when we talk about things like supplies and vaccine rollout. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I mean, J&J, &J, yeah. of course, is a very important one as well, because exactly. that is expected to be the next one uh, out of the shoot. And remember, that's only one. Uh, you only have to get it once. It's not three weeks apart, as is the case with Moderna uh, yeah. and the Pfizer vaccines, which could also prove helpful, certainly in terms of the rollout, as you say. Uh, other news to get to this morning. And Bob, glad you're with us because you follow it closely. Uh, that leadership change at the SEC, Jay Clayton, of course, Resigning, Elad Roisman uh, becoming the acting chair. Not going to be in that position for too long, but tell us what you know. Well, no, and the reason it's likely he will not be is because it's the acting chairman and uh, Elad Roisman is a Republican. So the way the SEC works, it's a, a five-member commission. Uh, there are two, historically, two Democrats, two Republicans, and the chairman is nominally neutral, but actually usually is the a member of the party that's in power. So Jay Clayton resigned. Uh, uh, Clayton was j essentially 3-2 Republicans, Democrats. Clayton has resigned. It's now 2-2. Roisman, who was 
one of the two Republican commissioners is now acting chairman. So it's essentially 2-2, and we need another person, a permanent chairman. That will happen down the line, but I wouldn't hold my breath in expecting somebody immediately. Uh, there's a lot of other uh, fish to fry for the Biden administration in terms of uh, appointments. So it's quite possible this might be several months. Nonetheless, there's some very interesting things going on already in terms of what we might be able to see from the Biden administration in 2021 in terms of market enforcement, market regulation. There is an awful lot of noise, awful lot around climate change. And the SEC, there's there's noises being made that the SEC should be calling around the companies and asking them, what policies do you have in effect for climate change? Uh, this is controversial because is that really within the SEC's mandate? Remember, the mandate hmm. here is for the SEC is capital for formation, fair and orderly markets and investor protection. And a lot of people are saying, wait a minute, you climate change activists, you want to start going around asking questions about what everybody's policies are? That's not the mandate of the SEC, Morgan. So you can expect people to turn around and say, OK, let's uh, let's cool it on that. And the question is, how much real power is the SEC to have? Even just to ask the question, not to say you're violating something, but just to say, what policies do you guys have? And that's a way to get the conversation going. So it's a backdoor way, guys, to essentially get into the ESG debate. The other thing is hmm. boardroom diversity. You saw what NASDAQ was doing recently, starting to ask questions about what kind of people do you have on your boards? And finally, regulation best interest. That's a very interesting question about fiduciary standards and whether or not there should be more aggressive enforcement of fiduciary standards or the SEC's new regulation best interest. So I think look for climate change and boardroom diversity as very hot button topics in 2021. Yeah, that's interesting to hear about the SEC and climate change. Uh, I would imagine it's going to raise quite, quite a number of uh, eyebrows, both in corporate boardrooms and uh, on Wall Street as well. And it actually makes me think of those lawsuits that we've seen um, playing out in some of the courts. I, I think there, there are ones that have involved ExxonMobil, for example. I don't know too much about them, but um, I, it just makes me think of that around this I idea of climate change and, and the legalities of climate change and what that means from an investor standpoint. Uh, so it'll certainly be interesting to see how that how that plays out in 2021. Oh my God, in just a couple of days. I mean, am I right? Um, yeah, and it's, it's I, I wonder, Bob, um, if you've heard any names, and I realize you said it, we're probably a few months out, but if you've heard any names floated from the Biden administration about potential new SEC chairs, because that's going to be one that I would imagine the markets watch very closely as well. Yeah, um, there have been a few. This is this is a speculation that I think don't think is terribly profitable. It happens. Preet Bharara, for example, has been floated because some of the more, uh, say, progressive wings of the Democrat Party are very interested in having an aggressive enforcement stance. So what would you do? Hire an enforcement. Uh, Mary Jo White. Uh, she came from the enforcement community. Uh, Jay Clayton did not. Um, so there are debates that kind of get into Democratic policy initiatives. And so if you have people who are in the market structure, market regulation area, are they going to be uh, moderate? Are they going to be progressive and more aggressive? The, the more progressive wing wants somebody who's more heavy on the enforcement side. Um, but uh, I still maintain it. Watch the climate change and the diversity mm. uh, debate. That's going to be that's going to be the thing that really is going to get headlines in 2021. Yeah, and I think we're going to be talking a little bit more about things like ESG in the next hour of the show as well. But in the meantime, Boeing 737 MAX is back with passenger flights starting today here in the U.S. We are live in Miami. That's coming up next. 
Don't go anywhere with Boeing shares up 1% in the pre-market. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. The 737 MAX is back in service for passengers. Its first commercial flight in many months will take off shortly from Miami and land at New York's LaGuardia Airport. Phil LeBeau, well, as you might expect, he will be on that flight, and he joins us now ahead of it. Phil, quite a, uh, quite a story here. It is, David, one that we've watched play out over the last year and a half, two years going all the way back to late 2018 when the first 737 MAX crash happened. We're going to take off in a little over an hour to give you some perspective on how long it's been since we've seen a 737 MAX commercial revenue flight in the United States. You've got to go back to March of 2019. So 636 days since there was a U.S. revenue flight for an airline here in the U.S., Daily flights for American start with this one. It's going to be daily round trips between New York and Miami. Just a few minutes ago, we heard from the president of American Airlines, and I asked him point blank, look, are you worried that people are going to say, wait a second, I'm not getting on board the MAX? Here's what he had to say. As we take a look at, the, at our loads, uh, there really isn't anything to distinguish these flights you know, from the rest of the system. And we haven't seen anything that would suggest that people are booking away uh, but at American, we're trying to be incredibly uh, transparent about uh, the aircraft that people are flying on. As you take a look at shares of American Airlines, keep in mind that they now have 34 737 MAXs, 24 that were in the fleet, 10 new ones that they've taken delivery of. They're going to feather those into the schedule over the next six months. Guys, I have to point this out because I hear this from a lot of people. What if you book a flight and it's on a 737 MAX? Can you reschedule? And they said time and again, yes, you can. If you notice that the airplane is a MAX, when you book your flight, you can reschedule. And at the gate, they'll be announcing this is a 737 MAX. If you're not comfortable at that point, they say they will rebook you at that uh, when that happens on a particular flight. So again, we take off in about an hour and we'll be up in LaGuardia. We'll talk to you a little bit later on this afternoon. Guys? Phil, I cannot wait to see you make this journey today and hear about the before and the after. I mean, I guess we're hearing about the before right now. I am curious, though. I mean, I realize there were so many costs attached to the 737 MAX when it was grounded, and we've watched all the investigations roll out and how hard hit the airlines were by that. But now that we are still in the midst of this pandemic uh, and we do still see air travel, mind you, maybe the last couple of days, you know, aside, pretty depressed. Um, The fact that it is cost efficient, fuel efficient, was seen before the groundings as such a workhorse. Do you think that's going to spur adoption or re-adoption more quickly? Yes. In fact, Robert Isom said just a few minutes ago, one reason that they are bringing the MAX back into the schedule 
as quickly as they are is the fact that it is a more cost-effective plane for the airline to fly. And they believe that all the changes that have been made, whether it's the flight control software or the enhanced pilot training, that makes this plane ready to go. So if you're sitting on a more cost-effective option, why not get it into the sky as quickly as possible? Phil, uh, thank you. And uh, of course, uh, we will be checking in with you. You're about to board that plane. Phil LeBeau, who's been following the story, as he said, from the very beginning, of course, the tragic beginning of it. Uh, let's give you a look at futures here. We are heading uh, to break very quickly. We'll be back with an opening bell. As you see, we are set up for a higher open yet again on all of the markets. Stay with us. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX. Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Shei a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. There's a lot of stimulus, and I think there's a chance that for the end of the year, uh, growth could be explosive. And if it is... Uh, then the Fed would have to reconsider uh, how long it wants to keep rates so low. But at the moment, uh, I think it's a, enjoy what's unfolding. Of course, that, that was Ed Hyman from yesterday. I noted those comments, Bob, because he has had a very good track record in terms of accurately forecasting, broadly speaking, the economy. He also had positive things to say, as you might imagine, about his view of the equity markets in 2021, again, largely because of the Fed. Uh, and as well, uh, the federal government in terms of spending and the vaccine, just all these things seeing being as uh, be, uh, seeing uh, uh, that they will be stimulative, uh, Bob. And so you've got yeah. that going into 2021, at least Ed Hyman saying uh, we're going to keep going. Yeah, Ed Hyman's terrific. And I completely agree with him. So, again, go back to the fundamentals. What moves stocks? Number one, dividends, dividend growth. Number two, Earnings and earnings growth. Number three, the market multiple, which is a sort of a measure of exuberance. How how optimistic are people about uh, the future? And number four, which is what Ed is getting at, is liquidity. Liquidity is a very simple point. How much money is there out there to buy stuff? In this case, how much money is there to buy stocks? And as Ed has noted, there is an ocean of liquidity. Remember, the Federal Reserve started out this year with a $4 trillion balance sheet. They've added three, three and a half trillion. They're north of $7 trillion on their balance sheet. And they're going to keep going. You know, $120 billion a month, that's another uh, billion and a half, uh, uh, trillion and a half dollars uh, that you're dealing with uh, throughout the year. 
so just think about this. The Fed's going to have a $9 trillion balance sheet potentially uh, in a year. A lot of that money finds its way into the stock market. So on the margins, does it matter? Oh, heck yes. And just call your friends, David, like I've been doing all year and say, if the Fed hadn't intervened in the way they did in March with the oceans of liquidity and all those programs, would the markets be lower? And everybody says, oh, yeah. And I get 20% lower, 30% lower, 40% lower. Nobody knows. But everyone says, oh, yeah, it would have been lower. So, yes, uh, at the margins, I think the Fed was the, the biggest influence on the market, as well as hope for uh, a smooth rollout of a vaccine. Yeah, record highs for, for the market. Also, what it's, what it's meant for buoying the housing market as, as well. And unfortunately, we do have these debates. We've been having them even more increasingly this year um, on what it means to the income equality conversation as well. Um, with that being said, though, David, we do have the opening bell here. Yes, we do. As you can see, the real-time exchange back at headquarters, where uh, I've been for the last four months, but not today. But you are right now, Morgan, of course. Yeah. Uh, and you can hear those opening bells and take a look at the NASDAQ uh, and the New York Stock Exchange, where we haven't been, Bob, for a very uh, long time, of course. But there it is, uh, almost all green again as we continue to surge towards the end of the year here, Bob. Uh, I don't know what the market multiple is right now, but you pointed out that it certainly is pointing to what will be significant earnings growth for the first quarter of next year. Yeah, uh, it's about 22.3 for if you look at 2021 numbers. And that is on the very, very pricey side. Remember, we talked about what matters for the markets. Dividend growth, earnings growth, market multiple liquidity. The market multiple is really rich right now. And the bulls say, It should be rich because we're expecting a massive reopening and a massive increase in earnings in 2021. Okay, there's some reason to believe uh, that may be the case, but we are historically uh, rather stretched. I I think the important thing to point out, David, is not just the S&P at a new high, but global markets are at new high. We've got a global rally that's been going on for several months now. So if you look here, Germany's at a new high today. Asia's been doing very well. Taiwan, uh, Japan is at a a multi-decade highs, Morgan has pointed out. Uh, Vietnam is at a new high because the dollar's been weaker. Some of these emerging markets have been strong. And even China is one of the best performing markets uh, for the year. The China CSI 300, uh, that's on the bottom there that you see. That's sort of the S&P 500 for China. Uh, That's essentially right near a new high uh, as well. So Mm -hmm. broad market rally that we've been seeing here. The gainers this year, Morgan, I'd say there's three groups. The stay-at-home stuff that you see out there, um, there is a, what, what you see uh, for, uh, not SPACs here, we should be putting up the gainers for 2020. No, uh, that's mine. Etsy, yeah. PayPal's, ServiceNow, and Pool Company, <laughs> some of those other ones, the small stay-at-home companies have really been doing very, very well. On top of that, of course, um, there you see some of the stay-at-home gainers that we've seen. The other group I would point out is semiconductors. I know we've seen a little weakness recently in some of the names like NVIDIA, but don't kid yourself. I mean, just look what's going on here with these companies. Semiconductors are in everything that we make, including cars and, of course, including anything uh, from uh, Internet uh, at-home devices here. Uh, the biggest story of the three, the mega caps in 2020. Uh, Apple, as you see here, up 86% for the year. Microsoft, look at these gains here that we've seen. So you put together the top five, the mega caps, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, Facebook. They're about $8 trillion in market cap right now. So the S&P is about $32 trillion market cap, 31 
the, five, the top five stocks in the S&P are almost 25% of the market cap. And those top five, I would say Amazon and Microsoft and Apple, uh, we talked about this this morning in the morning call, is about half of the gains of the S&P. So that's why we pay so much attention. I get emails all the time, guys, yeah. about, gee, yeah. well, every day, but it, Bob, four stocks you guys talk about. Bob, you forgot yes. about number six. I mean, I just went in, of course, but it is by far the story of 2020 <laughs> when it comes to a stock. And we know what we're talking about okay, here, talking Tesla, about Tesla, which strangely <laughs> is, actually, about, yeah. is, is actually down today, uh, but up, let's call it 690% right. for the year. That's right. And if you'll notice, not to be a curmudgeon, what was the market high on, on Tesla? It was the close on December 18th. That's when it went mm. into the S&P 500. There's a lot of research that indicates that mega cap companies that go into the S&P 500 run up going in and tend to underperform afterwards. This is a very well-studied phenomenon. So far, Tesla is living up to that. Now, that has nothing to do with the fundamentals. It's more of a, a liquidity play uh, and a demand play. So it doesn't have anything to do with Tesla's fundamentals. But just look, the highest Tesla got was at the close on uh, December 18th. Yeah, that's a key point uh, right there, Bob. You know, I just want to go back to Apple for a second, though. Remember when that was a value stock? I mean, my gosh, what a difference two years has, has made. I think it's trading at, what, 35 times forward earnings right now? I mean, that was, that's, that's, yeah. an, that's an incredible jump in valuation for that name versus where we saw it historically trading uh, in, in recent years. Similar thing, I think you mentioned Etsy as well. Etsy is up over 300% year to date, and I think the forward multiple there is about 90 times as well. So it goes back to this conversation yeah. that we had at the start of the show and that we've had pretty much every day, and that is valuations in pockets of this mar market frothiness, the fact that you have an increasing number of investors, strategists, analysts that are pointing to uh, that tech bubble of the late, 90, late 90s and some of the froth that we're seeing here. And maybe, I don't know, David, maybe I'm jumping the gun here, but maybe it goes back no. to that SPAC um, board that we just <laughs> accidentally put up and the fact that we have seen the SPAC attack and, the, and this IPO market, this public, going public market more generally, uh, be incredibly fervent as well. Yeah, I want to take a look at those facts that you referenced. Of course, they came up unexpectedly on Bob there, although he's <laughs> followed it closely. But first on Apple, guys, you know, it is important to point out, of course. Well, actually, all right, let's just get to it. And then we'll come back to Apple if you want. Um, you know, Bob, uh, you followed facts closely as well. Yeah, third, so there it goes. <laughs> we'll just keep bringing it up and eventually one of us will actually talk about it. Um, Live Oak acquisition, that's actually... Danimer, remember, it's uh, the graduate, plastics. Yeah, apparently it's still, yeah. you know, 1968 or whether it's now, 1960, whatever that was. Uh, it's still uh, a value. The equity value there was $890 million. Um, it's been a great performer. Now, by the way, Kensington is uh, QuantumScape. So that deal not just announced but also has closed. So Kensington no longer is Kensington. It's actually QS QuantumScape Longview Acquisition. That's my friend Larry Robbins. Remember we brought them on, the... Uh, the sonogram that basically is like a stethoscope. You can, you know, a doctor can have it hanging around their neck and, and use that. Uh, but you see some of these SPACs, uh, Bob, that have performed so well. Something I wanted to uh, point out for, for some of the investors out there as well, though, is the warrants that go along with the SPACs. Remember, they typically price at $10 for a share, but then they also have warrants that are exercisable at $11.50. $11.50. But it is interesting to note the differential, for example, QuantumScape, which I think we can take a look at, where the warrants trade far below where the stock price is, even when you 
count in the exercise. Um, it's interesting because if you want to be a long-term holder, it would seem, you perhaps are better off buying the warrants than the stock. But it does seem to be something that perhaps escapes some of those traders out there or some of those investors who use these platforms that we well know. We describe them as Robin Hood traders. One other thing as well, Bob, is when they register the warrants, when they become effective, uh, many of these stocks do start trading down because effectively you are obviously increasing the float as, as uh, they become effective and are, are exercised. So a couple of key things to keep in mind, but I think oftentimes we have overlooked the warrant side of the SPAC trade, um, which obviously also allows professional investors to do some hedging if they can actually borrow the stock. Yeah, I think the, the, the larger, it's a very good point about warrants, by the way. Uh, but the larger story this year, I, I think, and this would be in top five stories of the year in terms of the markets, is the, the rebirth uh, or the, the respectability that SPACs have attained. Uh, people forget, SPACs did not have a very good odor on Wall Street up until about two years ago. SPACs, uh, the Burger King thing aside, historically has been used in small caps. And historically, the aftermarket performance has been dismal of these. Uh, and so for many, many years, people thought this is not the right way to do it. Beginning with some of the success, uh, including Chamath Palahipatia, uh, bigger people got in. There was a lot mm -hmm. of cynicism about this. I called it two years ago, Morgan. Trust me, I'm famous market because all big people started coming and saying, help. I'm famous. I can raise money. I don't know what we're going to raise money for, but we're going to target something on my name and my reputation. And I'm going to be a partner with this up and coming company. And trust me, I'm famous. That actually turned out to be fairly uh, because big people got in and there were some early successes in the last two years. The whole market has taken off. What I think we need to watch more carefully, guys, is the aftermarket performance. Remember, we have how many SPACs that are out there right now seeking? We have 210 SPACs right now, David, seeking acquisitions. Okay, yeah. we're going to talk about yes. four, five, six big successes. How about the rest of them? I want to see aftermarket performance in the next year of the bunch that's gone through in the last two years. Then I'll have a better sense uh, of, of whether or not SPACs really are a good deal for the people who buy them, our viewers, after they actually go public and announce the acquisition, the target acquisition. Yeah, I mean, to that point, I think you, you just mentioned Palihapitiya. I think Virgin Galactic was in many ways kind of a turning point in terms of um, the SPAC craze and uh, the fact that we've seen that stock, even though they have not actually, the space company, space tourism com company has not even yeah. yet actually launched commercial operations. Um, the fact that we have seen such an incredible run-up in that stock since uh, it did go public through this reverse merger transaction uh, back last fall. Uh, another name I just want to point out, though, not a SPAC, did go public through a traditional IPO earlier this year during the summer, I, I believe, is um, Lemonade. That stock's actually up 5% right now. It's a mid-cap um, online insurance. Uh, it had sold off pretty aggressively in the last couple of days ahead of the expiration of its lockup today, but it, it is getting a bounce here. And that is going to be one of those key things to watch with some of these big, high-flying names that have gone public uh, in IPOs uh, in recent months is going to be these lockup expirations and, and what happens given the huge run-up we've seen on some of these stocks. Bob. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and of course. Um, uh, either. <laughs> and of course, Palantir announced a very, um, uh, essentially announced a very limited lockup 
uh, and it's done very well. This is very hotly debated. One of the reasons, for example, direct listings, which is the third form of going public, IPO SPACs and direct listings, uh, have been controversial, is that traditionally in the few that have existed, there have been almost uh, no lockup. Everybody can sell at the same time. And people who are traditional buyers of this have objected, saying, wait a minute, we don't want everybody just dumping their shares. We want some time to see how the stock performs, and we'd, we'd like a lockup, period. So I think that's going to be tested this year, uh, now that uh, the New York Stock Exchange has gained permission to have direct listings where they are selling shares as well. And some companies, I think, will announce some lockups that are doing direct listings. Others may not. Um, but I think uh, lockups are going to become a, a little bit of an issue uh, this year. And we'll, we'll test that hypothesis. We don't want people dumping stock uh, at the open bec- uh, at the first day because uh, that's going to depress the price. That's a theory. It may be true. We'll find out. We'll see. We'll have some test cases this year. I think that'll be good. Yeah. On the IPO front, guys, we should mention um, SAP announcing or actually they announced it in July, their plan, Mm -hmm. but they did file or Qualtrics. It's a company they only bought a couple of years ago, but it was under the uh, previous uh, management uh, when Bill McDermott was running the company. Uh, They bought it for about eight billion. They're taking it public now. Uh, Perhaps it's a valuation as high as between 12 and 14 billion dollars. They'll still own about 80 percent of it, but it is part of sort of the plan under the new CEO. Uh, to de-emphasize at least that part of their business. It has done quite well, uh, Qualtrics at least, at, at least per- perception-wise. Again, Bob, back to some of the multiples that are being paid for anything that comes right. with a cloud in the name uh, at this point. Uh, you can yep. see it as having a somewhat positive impact for SAP. Well, the important thing here is this is part of the game of successfully floating IPOs, but particularly tech IPOs. And it's very simple. Float as little as you possibly can. Float 10% or less of it. And you get a lot of people talking about it. Everyone wants to talk about any, any kind of software, software as a service, any kind of uh, software. There are uh, a customer experience software in the case of Qualtrics, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and let essentially the demand for that uh, overwhelm the stock price. It's been a very successful formula. The same thing's happening here. So float a small amount of shares. They're going to control uh, 80% SAP, I believe, of the outstanding shares still. So yes. here, this is a great yeah. idea. Let's float the thing. We bought the thing. Let's float it, and let's just sit around and let the thing go up, and we still control 80% of it. It's, think about it. It's a brilliant idea, and it's, it's worked for the last several years. Why wouldn't it work now? Yeah, well, it certainly is showing that it was uh, at least uh, on on paper a decent acquisition, although, again, it may not be part of the strategy for the company uh, going forward. But to your point, they are creating some value there. Uh, By the way, speaking of value, the Nasdaq is the leader so far on the broader equity markets, up some 1.1% right now. And if you're keeping track as we head towards the end of the year, 44% is the gain for the Nasdaq, led once again by some of the names you know so well, Amazon, uh, Apple, Uh, and the like. Uh, Let's get to uh, Rick Santelli now and check in on the bond markets this morning. Rick. Good morning, David. Two day of tens gives you lots of information. Yesterday, right around one o'clock Eastern, when we buttoned up the five-year note auction, which was on the soft side, so was the two-year earlier in the day, we see that yields popped lower. Now today, we're going to have the seven-year note, 59 billion at one o'clock Eastern, record amount, at a record 2-5 severing offering, which totals $176 billion. These are big numbers. Open that chart up to early August, and you can see the all-time low yield close right above 
half of 1%, 50 basis points in early August. It really has been on an ascent. Nice angle upwards as we hover near nine-month highs, best levels since March when COVID hit. And if we look at what's going on with regard to the foreign exchange markets, let's look at a two-week of the dollar index. December 17th and 18th, we traded under 90 for the first time since the first quarter of 2018, and here we are back under 90 again, within striking distance of extending uh, the low comp, which goes back to April of 2018. And as you see on this chart of June of that year, we're going into year end pretty much at the two and a half year lows versus the Chinese currency as well. And when it comes to the euro, which really has had a pretty good year, the euro versus dollar, well, you can see on that chart, we're hovering at a level that we haven't closed at since the spring of 2018. Let's call it 32 months. And today is an interesting day, December 29th, because 31 years ago today, December 29th, 1989, the Nikkei had its all-time high close just shy of 39,000. Today, we're all excited because it's had a nice run, but let's face it, it's still down 29% from its all-time highs. That's what happens when banks and the government do a lot of trading together as they did in the 90s on the property and various uh, aspects of real estate. David, Morgan, Bob, back to you. Yeah, some good context there. Rick Santelli, thank you. We'll take a look at where we stand about 15 minutes into trade here uh, in this holiday-shortened week. The gains continue on Wall Street with stocks making fresh record highs this morning. The Dow is up 126 points. The S&P is up 17, 37.53 with every sector in the S&P in the green. And the NASDAQ is also up four tenths of a percent. Stay with us. we got more Squawk in the Street straight ahead. All right, it was a big year for IPOs in 2020, as well as uh, direct listings, of course. You just saw some of the SPACs that we've talked so much about. Leslie Picker is here to break down the public debuts of 2020. Leslie. Hey, David. Uh, for much of the first half of the year, the IPO window was basically slammed shut. A sell-off in the broader markets accompanied by volatility served as basically a stop sign for prospective listings. But starting in June, the market came roaring back in a massive way in total listings of operating companies and SPACs raised $170 billion, the most ever. On an inflation-adjusted basis, it comes in, though, just shy of 2,000 levels. A unique driver of this issuance was the unprecedented surge in SPACs, or special purpose acquisition companies have been talking about this a lot throughout the hour. These are essentially blank check vehicles that go public and then use the funds to find a future acquisition. In 2020, 81 billion dollars in such funds were raised, the largest being Bill Ackman's Pershing Square Tontine. Operating companies raised an additional $89 billion, led by names like Snowflake, Airbnb, and DoorDash. IPOs excluding SPACs saw the highest volume in six years. Experts say this surge in issuance is thanks to a number of factors, including lofty valuations, low volatility, muted private markets, and strong aftermarket performance. The average total return for this year's IPOs is 48%, more than double that of the Russell 2000. But with such a flurry of deal activity, many are starting to draw comparisons to the dot-com bubble. Some recent IPOs are trading at sky-high levels on a price-to-sales basis, but that seems to actually be propping the window open, at least for now. Companies such as Robinhood, Coinbase, Poshmark, Affirm, Roblox, Bumble, Petco, Qualtrics, all on the docket for 2021 IPOs, not to mention the slew of SPACs that I am told are also in the pipeline, guys. 
Yeah, there's going to be a lot more SPACs, uh, <laughs> I mean, in terms of them pricing. We know, I mean, I hear it all the time. I'm sure you do as well, uh, people who are considering doing it, in part, Leslie, because the, the, of the economics. We talk so often about it, um, you know, potentially as much as 20 percent of the SPAC that then goes to them as a promote uh, if, in fact, they do a deal that gets approved by shareholders, which more likely than not is often the case. So very little downside, Bob, for, for these uh, SPAC promoters and a great deal of potential upside if you hit it big, the likes of a QuantumScape, which right. we showed. By the way, QuantumScape's market value, I think, at $40 billion is you know, more than Ford's. And then we forget, I mean, Airbnb was only a couple of weeks ago, Bob, $88 billion market value. As we head into next year, what are you looking for in terms of, you know, the next Airbnb? Well, the, I, first off, I think we should just pause and reflect on what Leslie was saying here. If in April you would have said this would be the second biggest year ever for IPOs, uh, I mean, prior, before Greenshoe, I have $78 billion here raised by IPOs, just IPOs. Uh, the only thing beating that would have been the $85 billion in 2014, and that was only because of Alibaba. So if you would have said in April, this would be like the second biggest year ever for IPOs, I would have said, are you nuts? That this is really is remarkable. On top of, as Leslie noted, the uh, $75, $80 billion in SPACs, a lot of this depends on how you add the numbers up. Uh, the amount of money raised in the public markets this year, truly remarkable. Uh, and now, of course, we have a third source, the direct listings, where you can actually raise capital with these direct listings. Now, three routes to go public. I expect the way you need to look at this now is not just IPOs, Morgan. It's how much total amount of money is being raised via IPOs, SPACs, uh, and direct listings themselves. So I think it's very exciting. After years where companies were huddled down, uh, not going public because they were getting so much money to stay private, maybe, maybe this is the year finally the floodgates open and we get the public finally getting into some of these uh, smaller companies even uh, that are out there. Yeah, conversation we're going to continue to have. Bob Pisani, thank you for joining us for the hour. We've got another hour of Squawk on the Street straight ahead with the Dow and the S&P Gains fading after hitting a record at the open. The Nasdaq is now marginally negative. Stay with us. You've been listening to the opening hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.